A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy. Beloved, bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not according to our works, but according to his own design and the grace bestowed on us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now made manifest through the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word of the Lord. According to Matthew. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, 
Jesus charged them, do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Before uh, reflecting on the readings today, uh, just a, a little bit of practical business. So we got a directive, well, it wasn't really a directive. We got recommendations from the diocese about uh, how we might prepare ourselves for you know, the sickness that's going around that everybody has, that has everybody so concerned. So the diocese made some recommendations uh, and Father Steve and I talked about you know, what we should do to prepare ourselves here and uh, what we decided on is for now, we are going to omit the sign of peace, which is optional. Uh, the diocese, I, we would recommend that, uh, that you don't hold hands during the Our Father, which the church always calls a spontaneous gesture since there's nothing in the right that has ever actually prescribed that. Uh, so we'll omit that. And then uh, we've taken the holy water out of the fonts um, and the priests will not shake hands. We'll, we'll be back there to greet you after mass, but we won't be shaking hands. And that's just you know, to try to maybe limit the the contact we have here. Presumably these, these will remain in force, I don't know, till, till the crisis is over or something. So I just want to let you, so when, when the time comes and we don't do the sign of peace, uh, you know why. So we uh, have just heard the gospel of the transfiguration when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain and they witness something that they see him transfigured, he becomes radiant, Right, his face shines like the sun, his clothes become white, and then Elijah and Moses appear and they're conversing with Jesus and they're talking about uh, his passion. As is so often the case, it is helpful to go back and reinsert this mystery into its narrative context because uh, within the context of the gospel itself, uh, there are clues that help us understand the full meaning of the transfiguration. So this is because this comes from Matthew 17. If we go back to the, to the immediately preceding chapter, Matthew 16, we have the first confession of Jesus as Lord. And by confession, we don't mean like that kind of confession where you go say what you did wrong, but uh, where, you conf where you profess faith. Uh, so we call this the confession of Peter. And this is where Jesus asks them, uh, who are people saying that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And this is the first time that uh, who Jesus is is really acknowledged in uh, Matthew's gospel. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus recognizes that if Peter sees this, it's because he has been shown it by his Father or by the Holy Spirit. And so he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Therefore, you're the rock on which I'll build the church, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, but then what happens next is very interesting. What happens immediately following, and Peter wasn't up and down, right? So right after making this profession of faith and being told, my Father has revealed this to you, and you're the rock on which I'll build the church, then Jesus immediately begins to discuss uh, the passion that he has to undergo. He right away talks about going to Jerusalem being handed over, suffering, and dying. 
And Peter says, God forbid, Lord. And then Jesus says those very chilling words to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so Peter went from, you're the rock on which I'll build my church, to get behind me, Satan. But uh, we, we need to see in this an important thing. It's the, the very moment that Jesus is proclaimed to be the Savior, the awaited Messiah, the Holy One of God, he right away starts to talk about the fact that he's going to suffer and die. This is scandalous to Peter, but, it's, but Jesus is insistent that this is the fact. And then uh, Jesus' response to Peter is twofold. First, he talks about his suffering and dying, and then uh, after Peter tries to rebuke him and he rebukes Peter, he says, and if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. There's no discipleship without the cross. So we have the, the recognition of Jesus as Lord and him saying, but I'm going to be crucified and die. And if you want to be my disciples, you've got to take up your cross and suffer with me. So it's within that context that the very next scene is now Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And the gospel shows us this connection between the Lord's glory, the revelation. In a sense, we see who Jesus really is. We see a transfigured humanity, but also maybe a little bit of a glimpse of his divinity. Uh, and we have the connection then between the cross and glory, that the cross leads to his glory and his glory is not recognized except on the cross, right? It's on the cross that he's proclaimed king, his crown is a crown of thorns, all that sort of thing. Now, uh, the transfiguration is tough because it comes up twice a year every year. So we have the transfiguration the second Sunday of Lent every year. And there's also the feast of the transfiguration in early August. And it's one of those gospels that I don't necessarily look forward to coming up because I feel like I've said the same thing twice a year every year for the last 10 years. And so, uh, you know, and it's, my, my homily always ends up being some sort of variation on this theme, right? The connection between cross and glory. So I was in the chapel this week and I said to the Lord, I need something different. I need a new starting point. Because as soon as I started meditating on the transfiguration, the same old homily came back to me again. Uh, and then I, for some reason, I'll say inspiration, decided to look at the liturgy and see if that would give me a different starting point. And so I pulled out the missile and I looked at the opening prayer and I was really struck by what the opening prayer says. Uh, so we, we heard it a few minutes ago, but in case you didn't memorize the opening prayer, here it is again. Oh God, who have commanded us to listen to your beloved son, be pleased, we pray, to nourish us inwardly by your word that with spiritual sight made pure, we may rejoice to behold your glory. I'm going to read that one more time. O God, who have commanded us to listen to your beloved Son, be pleased, we pray, to nourish us inwardly by your word, that with spiritual sight made pure, we may rejoice to behold your glory. And I was really struck, and the Lord answered my prayer. Give me a new starting point for meditating on this passage. And I look in the, the liturgy and the, the opening prayer focuses on something that I had never really focused on before, which is the command uh, that comes from the voice of the Father that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And this is what the church really keys on in today's liturgy. Uh, you've commanded us to listen to your beloved son, so we pray that you would nourish us inwardly by your word. And so I began to think about, well, what happens if we really listen to the word? And if we allow that word to nourish us. Well, uh, one of the things is, if we really meditate on the word of God, and we can understand that uh, either as the scriptures, we can also, the word of God is Jesus, his son. 
right? The, the fullness of God's revelation is Jesus. So we can meditate on scripture or we can meditate on just the life of Jesus and just think about Jesus. Uh, and if we, if we, in a sense, uh, if we really spend time with revelation, if we really spend time with the word, and if we allow it to kind of resonate within our hearts, if we savor it, if we uh, really try to like chew on it and digest it and get everything we can out of it, then we're going to begin to be nourished by that word. And one of the things that I think we see in this image of the transfiguration is who is talking to Jesus when he's transfigured? It's Moses and Elijah. And these are, in a sense, types of the Old Testament. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem, which is to say his death, but then also on the other side of his death, his resurrection. So he's going to, in a sense, lead his people out of slavery from sin into the freedom of sons of God and the new life of the resurrection. And so in this image, we have, in a sense, uh, the representatives of the Old Testament discussing the Exodus, which is an Old Testament image of God leading his people out of slavery into freedom as his people. Uh, and I think we, we, one of the things we can see in this is that this image shows us that all of the revelation that God gave to his people, all of the law, all of the prophets, all the, the, the ways the Lord spoke to his people, they come to fulfillment in Jesus, right? Uh, so the father speaks through the prophets to his people, but then uh, his word is Jesus himself. So Jesus is the fullness of revelation. And uh, one of the things that our Christian faith is always really focused on is the fact that uh, we can only fully understand the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ, right? That, uh, that Jesus fulfills all of the old covenant and that so then uh, when we when we go back as Christians and reread the Old Testament with an eye towards Jesus uh, everything kind of falls into place and makes more sense and uh, as we meditate on, on that revelation with our eyes focused on Christ one of the things we can begin to see is that everything in God's revelation everything that he reveals in his plan for salvation uh, kind of points towards the cross it all points, actually, the, the prophets, the law, it all points to Jesus. And of course, Jesus is always directed towards the cross. We see that uh, even in the Christmas stories, right? The, the, or even the early life of Jesus, his, uh, his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, it's full of these images that point towards the end of his life when he lays down his life on the cross, uh, thus conquering sin and death. So I have noticed in my life that the deeper I go in my meditation on scriptures, the more time I, I spend simply reflecting on the Lord, reflecting on the scriptures, uh, the more that movement happens interiorly for me. The deeper I go into my meditation on scriptures, the more I realize that, uh, so there's this phrase in, uh, in art, right? Uh, if, we, if you want perspective, then you need a vanishing point, right? Uh, some of you are nodding your heads, you know what I'm talking about already. Like if, uh, so let's say I wanted to draw, a, I'm standing, I want to draw a street and I want to draw everything in the correct perspective. What I need is to have, I need to pick some point on the horizon at which all the lines of perspective converge, right? Uh, and in a sense, Jesus uh, and Jesus Christ crucified becomes uh, the vanishing point for understanding all of revelation. Uh, and as we pay attention, all the lines of revelation kind of converge on the cross of Christ. And then another thing happened, uh, happens as I go deeper in my reflection on the word, uh, as I become more and more aware that all of revelation, uh, all the lines of perspective converge on the cross. 
it actually is starting to change the way I see the world. So as I, as I more and more inter internalize the word of God, make, uh, make it you know, reshape my soul according to God's revelation, the more I see the rest of my life taking on that same pattern, the more I start to understand the world uh, as all kind of converging on the cross. And so this, this all really jumped out of my mind when I, when I read this, this opening prayer, right? That, uh, Lord, you've commanded us to listen to your beloved son. So I'm, I'm thinking of that as... Uh, not only hearing the gospel, but really meditating on it, allowing ourselves to be fed by the word, that this nourishes our spirit, or, uh, that this nourishes us and that purifies our spiritual sight. And it's only when our spiritual sight has been purified by being nourished by the word that we're able to actually see the cross as what it is, which is glory. And we can, we can sympathize with Peter. When Peter, is, when Peter first hears Jesus say that he's going to suffer and die, Peter wants to reject that because... Uh, my Messiah can't suffer and die. How, how is you dying lead to my salvation? That, uh, in a sense, Peter's sight has to be purified so that he can see the cross for what it really is, which is the glory of the Lord and the manifestation of God's goodness and God's self-giving love. And so the more that we internalize that word, the more we listen to it, really attentively listen to it and become nourished by it, it purifies our sight so that we can see the cross as what it is, which is the glory of the Lord, and for us, a path to salvation. Now here's the other surprising thing, uh, is that as my life becomes reordered and I start to see everything is leading towards the cross, that might sound like a sad thing, but it's not. As I've come to sort of uh, slowly start to see the world in terms of biblical revelation, it has actually brought me new and previously unimagined levels of peace and joy. Because I see that, the, that suffering, as long as I can suffer with Jesus and in Jesus, suffering is redemptive. It's not bad. The suffering is actually the path to salvation. And by the way, if we really think about, the, about our situation, we shouldn't be surprised that that our path to glory lies through suffering. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, look at yourself. I'm looking at myself. Look at yourself. You know your fallenness. You know your brokenness. You know your weakness. In this world, in our fallen nature, if we want to become transformed, if we want to participate in the glory of the Lord, which must mean being transformed, must be being transfigured, it must mean being purified, if I know myself and my weakness and my brokenness, how can I possibly expect to move from where I am to a participation in the Lord's glory without suffering? It's not possible. How can I become better? How can I become holier? How can I become more generous and loving and selfless without undergoing the pain of being sort of torn apart inside because so much of me is broken? Now, let's use a, 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 a physical image that's maybe easier for us to understand. Um, I was talking to my friend yesterday, and uh, he said he was talking about the Olympics, and said that we watched the Olympics, and what we're seeing is the end point of a tremendous amount of suffering and work and self-deprivation, and at the end of that process, we see human beings doing unbelievable things. But if I said to you, I want to be like this Olympian, I want to be in shape like them, but I, I would like to figure out a way to do it that doesn't entail like pain or hard work. You'd probably just look at me like I was crazy, right? It's, there's, there's no way to go from what I am now to like this uh, 
this model athlete without undergoing pain because uh, I've given myself so much like physical dissolution. I've just allowed entropy to kind of take over my body, right? So if I'm, if I'm gonna get to a higher order, if I'm gonna get to where my body is more perfected, it has to come through suffering and pain. And the same is true in the spiritual life, right? Uh, same thing with, with, with learning. I, I sometimes wish that I knew like six languages, but I don't actually want to learn six languages, right? I just want to, I, I sometimes imagine that I would just go to sleep in like the matrix, the Lord would just download the, the languages of my brain. But the truth is, if I want to be a polyglot, I've got to spend a lot of time working and studying and do the, doing the mundane and frustrating and boring uh, work of actually learning new languages. That's how life works. Why would it be anything otherwise in the spiritual life? So in the first place, we see when Jesus talks about, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to share in my glory, you've got to take up your cross. That's not arbitrary. That's not God just because it's fun for him making suffering part of the deal for us. It actually has to do with our fallen nature. Because, we, because we've sinned, because we've turned away from the Lord, uh, this brokenness has come to dwell in us. And if we're going to transcend that, it's going to hurt. Now, that's an interior perspective. If we look at an exterior perspective, uh, if we follow the Lord more closely, well, look at what the world did to the Lord. And there's this, there's this really eerie prediction that comes from Socrates, who lived, by the way, hundreds of years before Jesus. And Socrates says that if the perfectly just man ever appeared before us, guess what he says we would do? We would crucify him. It's very eerie. <laughs> if the perfectly just man ever came before us, we'd crucify him. That's what happened with Jesus, because uh, in this fallen world, right now, uh, the evil one is the Lord of the world, and the spirit that guides the world is his spirit, not the spirit of the Lord. And so when perfect love, when perfect goodness, when perfect justice comes into the world, uh, the world stands judged by it and rejects it. When we see what the world did to Jesus, how can we expect not to suffer not to experience persecution if we become more like him. Because if we become more like him, then we become a sign of contradiction that the world wants to destroy. So we have interior suffering, which is not arbitrary. It's the process of becoming purified. We have exterior suffering, which is not arbitrary because this broken world rejects goodness. And then maybe one last point of reflection on uh, the connection between suffering and glory. I had a professor, it was, it was the most helpful professor I had in seminary, he was a deacon. Um, he was a married man, had children, he was a very holy man. And he said once that, uh, you know, we, we look at young couples in love. And it's a beautiful image, and it's that image that leads us to like write poetry and love songs and stories and whatnot. He says, but in actual fact, when we see like a wrinkly old couple sitting together on a bench, like this is what should lead us to write poetry, right? Because the, the young couple in love is maybe more than anything moved by passion, and passion is easy. But the old couple that's maybe been together for 40, 50 years, they have suffered something for their love. Right? Their love isn't their love isn't just passion, it's not, it's not fleeting. They've had, it, it, I guarantee you, if they've been together that long, they've gone through some stuff. But isn't their love actually more beautiful and not less because of what they've suffered for that love? So maybe uh, I have uh, two concrete proposals for you. One is for the next week, take a small bit of scripture every day, read it in the morning, 
and then try to meditate on it throughout the day. Right? I'm, not, I'm not saying you got to go make a holy hour. I'm saying start the morning with a small bit of scripture. I would maybe recommend something from the passion narrative of Matthew or the passion narrative of John or perhaps John 15, which is the image of the vine. Right, take a small bit of scripture and throughout the day, just try to think about it whenever you have a quiet moment. Really meditate on it. Don't just hear it and say, okay, move on, but uh, like savor it, chew on it, try to digest it, see what the word can give you. Uh, do this every day for a week and tell me uh, what, what that week was like for you. So that's, that's one, uh, and, if, and, if, and if you like it, maybe keep doing it for the rest of Lent. Right? So that's, that's really following God's command to listen to, to his word, listen to his son. Um, and then second, I want, I want to leave you with a reflection on the relationship between uh, suffering and glory and love, right? So we're thinking about these, these old, this old couple on the bench. And I would kind of, I would leave you with two questions. One, uh, in our broken world, is it possible to really love anyone or anything without suffering? But also, is it possible that when we suffer for love, it's going to bring us anything but glory?